This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by coaches for coaches. Stop guessing, start assessing. Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in today. This is another episode of Strong by Science, Max Thoughts. Um, I've received a bunch of questions lately about power development how we develop power for athletes, and what kind of principles we should use. So just a heads up, today's podcast is going to be focusing on five major principles of power development. For uh, those of you that have read my book that I authored with Matt Van Dyke, Applied Principles of Optimal, Optimal Power Development, this is going to be Similar in nature, we'll be diving into some of those topics, but not into that detail. So just a heads up, the five principles we're going into here are maximal intent, achieving the highest level of readiness, optimal load, maintaining velocity, and then minimizing fatigue. So we're going to start first off with a little clarity as to what power is. So for those at home and keeping it simple, in this case, we're going to reference power as force times velocity, or even simpler, the speed you lift a certain load at. And uh, that's kind of going to help keep some clarity there as we get rolling through these topics. So the number one aspect and principle for power development is maximal intent. So the research is really detailed on this, and they've actually done a really good job of ironing this out and when we look at developing power we want to make sure that we're performing that movement with the maximal amount of intent we can possibly perform and so what I mean by that it's if we're jumping if we're running if we're lifting weights we're doing that at our highest level and our highest ability to do so so this is universal we're not talking about, oh, you need a specific load. We'll not dive into that yet. You don't need a specific weight, a specific movement. But in order for all these other principles to work, we need to make sure we're lifting our load with the most intent possible. So whether we're doing isometrics, whether we're doing barbell movements, barbell squat jumps, deadlifts, kettlebell swings, um, you know, any movement that is geared towards power development, having that intent being very high is critical. When your intent is high, the amount of motor unit recruitment is much higher. The amount of force is being produced for that load is maximal. You are giving all you can from a central drive standpoint. When I say central drive, that's your brain and your motor cortex firing the motor units available for that movement and you're teaching the body to move with intent. So this applies for heavy loads. It applies for light loads. It applies whether we're doing jumps. And what I mean by that too is, you know, if we're doing, um, let's say a squat for 
five reps and uh, five sets. Typically, you see an athlete, you know, they get through the sets, but if we want to develop power, they need to have intent through the set. Every effort needs to be the highest level and the highest ability possible. That is why when we talk about the next couple of principles here, we got to keep in mind we're talking about intent. We're talking about the ability to exert your highest level of effort on that load. For those of you curious, some of the research shows that whether we're doing explosive kettlebell swings, maximal effort deadlifts, or isometric mid-thigh pulls, we see a lot of the similar motor unit recruitment patterns when that intent to move is maximal. And so just some clarity there as well. When people talk about isometrics, and I refer to isometrics, especially in regards to maximal intent, we're talking about pulling or pushing against an immovable object. So imagine we have pins on the rack or you're pressing into um, pins on the you know bench press. When we press and apply a force, we're applying against something that's not going to move, but we have the intent of moving it. So this is an overcoming isometric. When we talk about isometrics in terms of yielding, these are ones where you might go down to the bottom of a squat and pause. So very different in nature. We want to make sure our intent is high. And if we're doing isometrics, in order to have maximal intent movements, we need to do overcoming isometrics into an object that's not going to be able to be moved. So now that we've kind of ironed out, understand the importance of maximal intent, um, we're going to dive into how you actually start to measure that. So you can yell at an athlete. You can tell the athlete, you know, move it fast. You move it as hard as you can. But that's not always the best way to get someone to do what they can with their highest level of effort. This is where technology or an external stimulus can be really beneficial. So if we're talking about an external stimulus, you might have someone do jumps. And instead of just jumping up and down, you might have them reach for an object. So imagine you have a tennis ball hanging from the ceiling Instead of saying, hey, let's do, you know, three reps of maximal jumps. Let's jump as high as we can and try and grab that tennis ball hanging from the ceiling. Another form of encouraging intent is giving feedback. And this typically comes in the form of technology. So we're talking about maybe we're using a device like a Tendo unit, which measures how fast the bar is moving. Or maybe we're using like a G flight or a jump device to measure how high they're jumping. And we were giving the athlete feedback on what their performance was. There's actually a great study looking at this. There's numerous studies actually, but one that really comes to mind and people have probably read before is the study in regards to these two groups did the same program. But one group had feedback and the other group didn't in regards to their jump squat um, velocities, or I think it's power velocity, one of the two. Regardless, it was feedback on their performance. And what they found was when they got feedback 
on their performance an objective score on what they did, the group that got that feedback had better adaptations. So what that's telling us is that when we give feedback, we are motivating the athlete probably more so than we could otherwise. And that's because, and you know how it is, first off, athletes are very driven. And when they start to compete against themselves, that's the way that you can probably get them to bring about their highest ability. But also, that feedback acts as a form of biofeedback. So when they see the success of their movement, they remember that movement pattern. And then they try to replicate it over and over and over again. So maximal intent is key. But understanding how to get the most out of maximal intent is critical in what devices you can use, um, what sort of modalities are out there. So an external stimulus as well, maybe jumping over a box, um, jumping onto a box, challenging the athlete to perform a task with the means of accomplishing, uh, them knowing the accomplishment themselves. So if they know, hey, I jumped onto the box, and that was my goal, and I was trying to jump with straight legs, that can be a form of external stimulus driving them to perform that movement with maximal intent. So after maximal intent, which is kind of the cornerstone of power development, we're going to talk a little bit about the next aspect, which is achieving the highest level of readiness. And so this is kind of a two-sided topic here. So the first aspect is, you know, what can we do in the weight room to amplify the ability of someone to perform? So there's something called post-activation potentiation. And this is the ability of a muscle and the muscle fibers to be potentiated by a preceding movement. So for example, let's say we're getting ready to jump and we're going to perform a jump Well, in order to perform the highest jump and get the optimal level of readiness, we might do, um, we might do something with a back squat or a heavy movement to initiate this post activation potentiation. And they think this has to do with calcium sensitivity on the muscle itself and making it more, um, again, sensitive to calcium, but also helping the ability for those muscles to fire, maybe higher velocities with more force. So we have possibly that movement side, you know, what can I do beforehand? And for those of you curious, um, post-activation potentiation, there's a lot of good research on it. Um, typically it's done with a movement that also has maximal intent, probably with a little bit heavier load under a smaller range of motion because we don't want to fatigue the body too much we want this to facilitate the next movement like a jump so a great example would be i'm going to do a, a mid thigh pull or a quarter squat with you know super maximal weight or a lot of you know 90 percent or above for one rep and then i'm going to wait about three to five minutes to perform my maximal intent jumps the idea behind this again is that back squat is facilitating the jumping ability and the movement itself. This is also needs to be taken into consideration with 
a good warm up. So it's not just the movement, but we kind of view this post activation potentiation as like the most optimal form of uh, readiness. And it also is a high stress on the central nervous system, which means that we might be having to rest a little bit longer in between loads. It's something we maybe can't always apply to training every day. So another aspect of you know, optimal readiness, we got to take into consideration some of the other factors. So are they ready to actually perform power movements itself? Is that person in an optimal state? Did they sleep enough? Are they um, had the right nutrition? Are they hydrated? So like from a nutritional side, you know, having enough, um, you know, carbs or the right fuel in your system to perform a power movement is critical. So we often say, oh, you know, we always talk about the weight room, the weight room, the weight room, but what's going on outside of the weight room that you could possibly facilitate into that movement itself or into that cycle that you're using, um, to develop power. So. This might get into some aspects where some people might, you know, um, kind of mess with different uh, nutritional profiles of the macros based on the cycle. Maybe someone is encouraging a little more fat metabolism during the aerobic cycle. And I believe this is a, a term coined by Dr. Andy Galpin calling it metabolic flexibility. Um, and that's, again, why people might do some of that. But then if we're getting into a power phase, we know we need to have the right nutrition available because these movements are explosive. And based on a lot of the literature, having the right ingestion of carbs you know, before and after can help uh, reduce some of the possible inflammation as well as properly restore the muscle with the nutrients it needs. So then we can also talk about you know, sleep, the coach's awareness of the athlete itself. Does the athlete look ready? But we want that person to achieve the highest level of readiness. If they can't do that because there are other outside factors that are limiting them, then doing the post-activation potentiation stuff might do more harm than good. So you kind of have to earn the right to do that post-activation potentiation just because it is very taxing on the body. And it has to be done in a form where your body is ready to do power itself. So those are kind of the, so maximal intent we've gone over. Principle number two, achieve the highest level of readiness. The, sec, the third principle would be selecting the optimal load. So this is where you start getting into optimal power development for a sport. And if we're just looking at maximal power itself in nature or I guess in isolation, we're looking at how can we first off quantify it and then how can we train it? A lot of people like, like to use the line, um, the peak of the mountain isn't where uh, people live, they live on the sides. And so while we might train a certain point on a power curve saying, oh, this load or this velocity elicits the highest level of power output, we actually might want to train a little bit below and a little bit above in order to facilitate that adaptation of that specific point. Just to take a step back from that, we can use different profiling methods to understand what that individual needs in order to actually optimize their power. 
So we can look at one of the Car- – I give Carmelo Bosco this credit. It was actually him and uh, the Norwegians used it as well. And based on the literature, it's kind of hard to define who uh, came up with it first. But there's a profiling method that looks at how high you jump based on your body weight. We have, again, just a side note, some of these assessment tools on our Exergo Zendesk website. And we have all these free to download for a lot of those of you interested that might be listening. And on this uh, profile you can look and measure whether or not someone is uh, proficient in their maximal strength, in their strength speed, in their speed strength, or their velocity. And when I use these terms, max strength, think of a really heavy load moved very slow. And like strength speed means um, a heavier load moved a little bit faster. So there's a little more force and a little less velocity. Now a strength speed load has a little more velocity and a little less force or load on the bar. And then you have maximal velocity, which is minimal load and maximal speed. So based on that individual's profile, they might need a little more speed strength, a little more strength speed in order to optimize their ability to jump with the most power possible. So pro, like a lot of the profiling methods are critical to use because it helps you understand where that athlete is. J.B. Morin and Pierre Samazino did a little more detailed one based on some anthropometrics. You can uh, measure limb lengths and measure their push-off distance, and you can find their work, by the way, on their website. So you measure, um, you measure their limb length and their push-off distance And based on a series of jumps, you can determine whether or not they need uh, more velocity or more force. And then that can help guide what the optimal load is for that individual. At the same time, you can also then use um, some inferential methods where you might not have these specific profiles available. But you can look at, um, for example, the relationship between load and velocity is linear. And if you profile an individual, you can then calculate that load at which maximal power is being produced. And then you can understand if you're trying to raise that peak, you can do different methods, whether it be above or slightly below, and see how that's changing the power output of the movement itself. Or you can also just take a specific load. um, And even, let's say we don't even have a device on hand. We don't have any type of equipment. We can then measure or visually see, for example, let's use the hang clean as an example, how high that person is catching the bar. And then we want to increase the amount of weight that they can catch in a very high position. This allows us to look at inferentially the peak velocity of the movement because that velocity is going to dictate how high that bar travels. And the next topic we're going to dive into here now. So once you have have the understanding of maximal intent, right? we want to achieve the highest level of readiness. We need an optimal load. This is where the next one gets pretty fun and pretty creative. We want to maintain velocity. And so I'm actually going to clump the last two together. So maintaining velocity and then minimizing fatigue is the fifth principle. 
and they are slightly different, but they go hand in hand. So maintaining velocity can be manipulated, obviously, by changing the sets, the reps, and the rest periods. But it can also be understood by measuring how fast someone is moving based on technology and some of the feedback tools you might be using as well. So let's use uh, squatting as an example. Let's say you want to develop someone's ability to uh, produce power at 135 pounds on the bar. So you might say, okay, instead of applying a sets and reps scheme, I might apply a velocity drop-off scheme. So if I'm measuring the bar and that athlete can move, let's say, 135 at you know 0.1 meters a second, well, I might say, you're going to do as many reps as you can until you fall below you know, 0.9 meters a second. So I applied a what's called a 10% velocity drop-off. And when I do something like this, I'm now ignoring the number of reps they're performing, and I'm simply trying to have them move the bar as fast as they can for as many reps as they can above a certain velocity. By doing this, I no longer have to guess or the coach doesn't have to guess how many reps I need to do in order to make sure I'm moving that bar at the speed I want it to. Instead, you're objectively measuring it and you're seeing firsthand whether or not three reps, four reps, six reps is the number of reps they can perform before dropping off. What's really nice about this is that now it's becoming what's called auto-regulatory. So that's just a fancy word for meaning it's taking care of itself. You no longer have to assume that one athlete might need three reps and one athlete might need six because we know all athletes are different. You just say, get above this velocity for as many reps as you can. When you're doing that, now the athlete is encouraged to even move it with you know maximal intent because they're getting feedback and they're seeing their speed drop off and they're sitting there pushing as hard as they can instead of saving reps in the tank. So, again, if you don't have a machine that does this, just visually seeing how high they're catching the bar on a hand clean, how much of an upright position they're in when they catch it on a snatch, um, maybe a kettlebell snatch, a med ball throw. Um, you can do this measuring distances. So, like a broad jump, you can jump and you can see how far they jumped. And you can measure that aspect. You can time them on a sprint. right? Using velocity drop-offs, is a universal ability as a kind of a universal tool because every movement has velocity as a part of it. So now we kind of get into the minimizing fatigue standpoint, and this is where we can use velocity as a part of this, but not necessarily has to be used all the time. So if we're minimizing fatigue, you might want to have some sort of daily readiness tracking to understand what fatigue is in the first place. So let's say we have an athlete moving uh, 135 pounds on the bar and they typically move it at 1.0 meters a second when they move it as fast as they can. 
Now let's say that athlete comes in today and they move it at, you know, 0.95 or 0.90. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's a 10% drop off compared to what they normally are. So in your mind, you might make the adjustment immediately saying this athlete, for whatever reason, is not ready to perform um, a power exercise because they might be still fatigued from a previous set. Uh, not necessarily a set, but a previous day. So now you're taking that information that you've been collecting on those uh, athletes and their power development and you understand what normal is. And if someone comes in fatigued, maybe you have to, you can reduce the load, but you can take different means to re- minimize fatigue itself that day and maybe live to fight a different day. You can also do this as a uh, a means to know when you know when sets should be done or like finished. So if someone is uh, performing back squats and you're doing them with maximal intent, what you might have them do is you could have let's say them jump in between, and they don't get to do their back squat until their jump height has returned back to baseline. So now you're not thinking about how long should they rest, but you're applying a means to actually measure whether or not that athlete's ready to go to actually squat again. And maybe you put a time, put some sort of a time constraint on this. And so if their jump height doesn't return back to baseline after, you know, two minutes, then that whole session of squatting is done because that person can't recover quick enough to perform the next set with the highest level of, uh, you know, minimized fatigue. So now you're using, um, you know, velocity, I guess when you, by the way, I'll take a step back as well. So when you jump, that's an indirect measure of velocity because it's dictated by takeoff velocity. And so when I say jumping and velocity, I kind of use them interchangeably. Uh, and also, you know, sprinting and, um, like a horizontal broad jump as well. And so you might have someone, for example, jump before the workout, and they say, oh, look, they jump, you know, 30 inches. Now they do their squat set. And you say, all right, you know, at the one minute mark or a minute and a half mark, I want you to jump again. And they jump and it's only 27 inches. Then you have them wait another minute. You say, all right, this is your last chance to get it. Let's see if you can get it. They jump again. You know, they jump, you know, 30 inches just fine. And you repeat this over and over until that person's jump height isn't able to be 30 inches again before they squat again. Again, this is just a creative way in which we can use uh, velocity as means to minimize fatigue and optimize our rest times between sets and reps. Another aspect of this too is, you know, you can also just use your coach's eye in conjunction with some of this. So do they have subjective questionnaires saying, that they are tired? Do you visually see the form breaking down? Do you see other aspects of, you know, um, their movement that concern you and might be a sign of fatigue itself? So this is where minimizing fatigue isn't just about um, having the right number of days of rest between a workout, but you can start to minimize fatigue during the workout itself. Um, And this can help bring about understanding the athletes, the athlete understands, oh, I typically uh, need a little bit longer between my sets or I typically need a little bit quicker. And as a coach, what you can do 
is you can challenge the athlete's ability to recover. So if we're thinking about like a capacity aspect, now we're using some of these velocity measurements to say, all right, we're going to do three reps of back squats and let's see your ability to recover after a minute. So now we're using this, or maybe you do like 10 reps of back squats, whatever you want to do. And this is almost like a way of using it as like a heart rate recovery. So in the aerobic system, example, we might have someone run for two minutes and then you rest a minute or a minute and a half and you want to see how fast their heart rate gets back down or as close as it can get back to baseline. So that difference between the maximal heart rate they had during that movement and then where it gets down to after a minute is your heart rate recovery. So now let's start looking at, you know, your power recovery. Can you do uh, four squats and then 30 seconds later jump the same height that you could before? Can we push that? Can we go five squats, six reps? You know, can I go from you know, seven reps and it takes you two and a half minutes? Now we go from seven reps and it takes you only a minute and a half for you to jump back to your normal height. So that's a cool way of now we're looking at, um, you know, developing power capacity, which is another aspect of power. And just to bring some clarity, so maximal power might be just one movement, but maximal power capacity is how well you can maintain power. An example of that would be if I had one athlete squat, let's say both athletes squat 135 pounds at one meter a second. So I'm going to say, I want to see how many reps you can do at uh, 135 while keeping it above 0.9 meters a second. One athlete might get four reps and the other athlete might get eight. Who do you think has more power capacity? One athlete was able to perform eight reps, twice as many reps as the other athlete who did four, without having their velocity drop below you know 10% of their max velocity at that load. So that's another way you can look at capacity. Or you can start training it where I'm going to fatigue them in this specific movement like a squat, and I might have them jump. I'm going to see whether now um, they're able to do something uh, like a jump, which is maybe not as cumbersome as a squat, and they can maintain that height over and over and over again and shrink that time period lower and lower and lower. So um, these are just some of the principles that Matt Van Dyke and I sat down and wrote about in our book, uh, Applied Principles of Optimal Power Development. Uh, You can find that on strongbyscience.net. It's a cheap plug for myself. Um, but in short, I really want to bring about, you know, these are some of the things you can do, but it's not limited to these five aspects. Like one aspect that we left out of the book and looking back on it, we probably could have applied and it's be like the, the sixth principle that we didn't put in. And that would be exercise selection. So obviously, um, we, we typically, we glossed over that a little bit, but for listeners who aren't aware, we need to pick the right exercise for these movements to be expressed with. So if we're doing, trying to train the vertical jump, we want to make sure that our movements that we're training for optimal power development are in that same vector of force. So when we jump, right, it's typically vertical. When we run, it's a little more horizontal. Obviously, when you run, there are aspects that are vertical too. But we're just saying for the sake of simplicity, it's a little more horizontal. You might be doing 
um, more movements that stress the horizontal vector aspect. Maybe, uh, maybe doing something like a glute bridge, uh, you know, a broad jump, uh, a band resisted jump or something of that nature for the horizontal aspect. But we need to select the right exercises and also we can get into then, is it the right range of motion? So maybe we want to focus only on a very specific range of motion when developing power. And maybe that range of motion is a little narrower and a little more constrained than it would be to the range of motion we might use for developing general strength. An example of that would be maybe we only trap our deadlift or squat and the range of motion that we jump in. But again, this is talking about the specifics of exercise selection for power development. You know, they're called special strength exercises. That's what it says in the SNC world. It just means picking an exercise that's very specific and relatable to the movement that you're trying to develop and the muscles that you're trying to work on in a specific range of motion. It doesn't mean you have to mimic the movement itself just the joint range of motions that are being stressed and to bring some clarity to what I'm trying to say there is we often see like the hip flexors being stressed at end range of motion with the high knee. Um, we all, we, the Russians figured out a long time ago that that's not where the hip flexors generate the most force. So it looks like running because it's a high knee and that's what you see in running, but really the hip flexors are developing a lot of force in a long position, typically starting back from some sort of, you know, you hip extend and then you drive your hip flexors forward to bring that knee up. So they're in a very lengthened position. And so while it doesn't look specific to running, because at first glance you're like, oh, you know, that's you know, a weird position they might be in because you might be laying down or in a different body position to actually stress it um, and load it properly but it's how the muscle actually acts during that movement. So when talking about the right movements to select, you have to identify how these joints are moving, how they're functioning, and then identify what exercises you can then place on top of that movement pattern to stress and develop that pattern, those joint actions themselves. And not to go too far on a tan, a rant, a rant, a, tan, a tangent or a rant. Um, all right, this is where you have like, kinetic pairs, you know, how is the knee and the hip interacting with each other? Maybe you're only isolating those two and overloading how those two joints work together um, versus the whole kinetic chain, which is like the whole body working at once. So obviously the most specific thing for sprinting is obviously sprinting, but maybe someone's working on overloading the hip extension aspect through glute bridges well, another movement might be overloading the hip flexors in a lengthened position. Or you might be doing something like a paw back exercise, which uh, you know, Dr. Michael Yes has made very famous and well known. But we're trying to train the body or some of these pairs of muscles and overload them in a way we otherwise wouldn't be able to. But we want to overload them so that they're acting in the same way they would act during that movement. And that way we have motor unit synchronization and how these muscles are working together. So the length tension relationship and the neurological association of these movements become much cleaner with the idea of having them translate a little better to sporting movement itself. So when we talk about exercise selection, 
it's not just under um, you know picking a movement that kind of looks like the sporting activity but it's understanding we want to overload how these joints and muscles are sequencing together and make it so it's the same way that they're doing it during that sporting action so again just to review the principles really quick we have maximal intent one two achieve the highest level of readiness three the optimal load four maximal velocity sorry for maintaining velocity five minimizing fatigue and then six that additional one selecting the right exercises so again i thank you guys for listening i really appreciate it uh, hopefully this was helpful and i gave you some ideas to mess with uh, we could have dove in a, a little bit deeper and i uh, will hopefully do that here in the future if you guys ever have questions shoot me a message on instagram uh, if you guys have topics you're curious about please feel free to message me there really appreciate you guys listening again and uh take care Thank you.